Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 67. Last week, we were in California with uh, Jason of Tablas Creek talking, or Tablas Creek, uh, talking about wine and how wine is made. So, so that was quite interesting. Next week, we're going back to the States uh, to speak with Tara van der Dusen and Natalie Kovarik. Um, what, what we're going to talk to those two ladies about is uh, their new business brand, Elevate Ag, which looks at podcasting, building brands in sort of agriculture in the States. And what's quite interesting about Tara and Natalie is between, between them, they have a following of 150,000 on Instagram. So I am very much dwarfed by them. So that'll be fun. But today for number 67, we have someone that has been referred to as a legend by two people to me in the last couple of days and was referred to me by number 32's R2Cast, Kaz Traharchik. So, Colin, would you like to say hello? Hello, good to see you. Before we get on into another excellent episode of the R2Cast, I would just like to thank the sponsor for the show today, The Scottish Farmer. A weekly magazine highlighting everything you need to know regarding the Scottish agricultural industry, whether it's breaking news, events happening in the sector, market reports, classified ads, or just wholesome stories happening in the industry. The Scottish Farmer's got it for you. It is a pleasure to have you on. We were just talking before. I'm worried, uh, I'm worried about being called a legend though. That doesn't sound right, but anyway. <laughs> I believe it was a uh, legend and master of the game were the two things that I heard. Um, ah, so, right, okay. um, and that's coming from two vets, two vets. So, really? um, yeah. That is is uh, big words have been spoken about you, Colin. But we we're just speaking scary, before we hit scary. record that we've sort of been away of each other for probably the best part of two years. Um, but I don't yeah. think ever spoken. <laughs> no, which is which is terrible. Yeah, it is. Being as though we we work for the same organisation in roughly the same area, and yeah, we've never actually met or spoken which is yeah anyway we put that right tonight so that's good, that good. well that's it we're going to speak for for some time tonight so um yeah it's I, I will throw a disclaimer out to those of you listening um you've probably listened to quite a few podcasts of mine over here um maybe you've listened to all 67 there won't be many of you but i'm aware of at least four so there is some of you um uh i think i might be out my depth on knowledge at some points in this discussion it must be said i've heard colin talk in various sruc seminars and i just pretend i understand half the stuff he talks about so i'm looking forward to learning some stuff myself um but mm. colin could you tell us a bit about when you were younger was was veterinary or or some form of livestock related life for you oh definitely i wanted to be a farmer i probably am still a frustrated farmer to be honest in that right. i I'm not from a farm. Um, I'm actually probably from quite a medical family, which is why it ended up going this way. Um, uh, but from very, very early on, I was the guy who um, had the Little Britain's farm, you know, uh, and all the model tractors. And then I worked as a wee boy right the way through all my sort of time at home on a, a local dairy farm, really small, very old fashioned local dairy farm. Um, and I loved it. And I think that's probably where I learned a lot about just about farming, everything to do with farming, just loved every bit of it, getting stuck in, in, in the way that you do when you're 10 or 15 or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's good. It's really good fun. Was, there must've been a moment where you were like, well, you, you, you said you want to be a farmer, but was there a time you were like, well, no veterinary's when what I want to pursue here? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, really, in that I, 
I guess it kind of evolved probably as I went through secondary school in that, you know, people people spoke to you and sort of said, oh, well, you could you could do vet. And, um, you know, if you're if you, you know, you've got an animal farming background, whatever, then that, that's a good career for you. And they said, oh, you could probably do it. So I thought, well, well, go for it. And, you know, yeah, you were it was very much the era of uh, all creatures, great and small and all that kind of stuff. So you were kind of inspired by all that, the lifestyle, everything to do with being a vet. And, yeah, you kind of got the thought, yeah, this is this is for me. Um, and that was the sort of positive. I guess I also thought, and it's quite interesting in the context of, um, you know, what, what you do, Wallace, is, is that I probably thought, I don't know how I would get into farming back then. You know, I wasn't from a farming family. I wasn't from a farming background. And I was thinking, well, how would I find a route in if I wanted to do that? So, so vet was my route in, really, to be honest, which worked for me. So that was good. It's, it's quite interesting that there's a girl from the village I'm from on Aaron whose parents are both doctors and she's very clever herself. And since she was nine, she's been up on our farm, just mm-hmm. part of it, you know. Just an unpaid yeah. worker, really. <laughs> that, that was that was me as a kid, definitely. I yeah. I just was there constantly, you know, and uh, yeah, they couldn't keep me away. I didn't really get paid. Well, I did eventually get paid, but to start off with, I was just a sort of a shadow to the whole thing, you know. Yeah, but that that sort of that um, experience as you get into the industry is 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 priceless, you know. Um, yeah. Very worthwhile. So you just, you obviously got into uni and and went. Did you yeah. go straight to uni from school? Straight to uni from school, yep. Um, went to, I was from Cheshire originally, so um, Cheshire Dairy Farm and Cheshire Life didn't know anything different. And my folks saw us, my mum, my mum's from the borders and, and actually my mum and dad met in Edinburgh. Um, and so known Edinburgh all my life as well, uh, growing up. And yeah, I wanted to get as far away from home as possible. So I went to Edinburgh and um that was that was great not not because i wanted to get away from home as such but it was just good to get free and get going and uh yeah had had a brilliant time brilliant brilliant time at, at Edinburgh university it was fantastic loved it are you speaking about the evenings and the nights or are you speaking about the time oh, everything <laughs> yeah there was a lot of fun had and and actually the vet the vet community like the vet school there was there was far fewer in a year in those days. I think I can't remember how many were in our year now. Certainly less than hundred. It was probably about seventy or eighty, something like that. Um, so far fewer than than what's there now. And it was a really tight knit group of people. You didn't know everybody, obviously, but you it was small enough that you did know everybody, and therefore it was quite a quite a good sort of work hard, play hard community, definitely. And and we did do we did work hard, but we did play hard as well. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's an, it's an important part of uni it's just as important yeah, as definitely. the learn yeah absolutely yeah and and you know lifelong friends that that you made there um that yeah always always be there so it's been good yeah we had a, we had a good year we were really lucky with who we had I think. <clears throat> and i've asked uh, the the two vets i've had on the podcast if there's a third vet and i have somehow forgotten you i apologize <laughs> there's been a few now um kaz and kate i asked both of them uh, and I'm going to ask you the same thing, Colin. Could you tell us a bit about the process of, or not the process, your time at uni from an academic perspective? Because it's it's an intense course. Um, it, it sounds one of the most intense ones I've really heard. Uh, could you tell us sort of from first year through, it's five years, isn't it, what, what that was like? Yeah, I mean, it's changed a fair bit since we did it, because then we qualified in 1995. So, you know, that, that dates me. Um, uh, <laughs> and in our day, like, you spent the first couple of years studying 
mainly healthy, you know, help what's normal, you know, how, how animals work, all the different, you know, anatomies of the different species and um, sort of year three was mainly about what goes wrong, you know, as in sort of diseases and, you know, all the bacteria, viruses, parasites and what they can do. And then your sort of last two years kind of putting it all together and how to fix it you know, um, and, and, and how to stop disease and how to make things better when they're real and all that kind of stuff. But you had to cover, cover everything. I mean, the whole point then and still is, 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 is that you're, you're omnicompetent when you qualify. Um, you know, you haven't got a full range of experience yet, but for sort of day one skills, you're, you're omnicompetent and you cover, you know, you, you're, you're equally knowledgeable in, you know, dogs and cats and small, small animals as you would be with, you know, farm animals and that kind of thing. So it's full on, uh, and and I think a lot of it, it's a me- a lot of it is memory, which is is perhaps mm-hmm. you know not not necessarily the best. There's just a lot to cover and a lot to learn and absorb, and yeah, um, you, you kind of had to keep on top of it. So you did have to work at it. I was one of these people who had to work pretty hard. Um, there were some people in our year who were just you know photographic memory type of geniuses that that they could they could still you know walk it you know literally walk sure. it. that was not me unfortunately my brain wasn't <laughs> that good so i had to put a bit of time in but anyway it was it was all good i loved it i absolutely loved the whole thing it was great there's there's more sense of um what's the word not deserving but more sense of pride that maybe not more but certainly it comes with a sense of pride when you've really had to put blood sweat and tears into learning that stuff and, and you've got through it though um, yeah yeah you yeah. do there was immense yeah I'll never forget the day like you're all you were always the last you know I, I shared flats I, didn't, I tended to share flats especially in the first few years with 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 people who weren't on the course and they'd all be finished up you know in mid-may late May something like that and you'd still be there at the end of June you know you're the sort of last people standing almost you know and uh uh, yeah, you had to put a lot of time in, but yeah, the, the, so when you actually got to the end of, of what was a pretty intensive sort of final set of exams and all that kind of stuff, it was part exhaustion and part elation, but it was a hell of a feeling to sort of to actually get there. You know, it was brilliant. Absolutely. I mean, my my masters would not have been as t- intense as 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 doing veterinary. I know, but it was that like, oh my god, I've spent the last five years of my life, a quarter of my life, basically. Yeah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, yeah. I can't really rest. I've got to find a job now. Uh, yeah, well, there is that. Yeah, because you you've you know. got no money, and uh, <laughs> there's, there's lots of people who qualified years before you did who've got full jobs and you know all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you'd have to just crack on at that stage, don't you? On the the fact you you leave, which I think is a great word, omnicompetent. It's fantastic word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the do you think I've I've always sort of questioned this, and and I would love to hear you say I'm wrong or whatever. Um, if you go in, maybe maybe not first year, maybe first two years, you're sort of a holistic look at everything. But do you think mm-hmm. you should be able to be like, well, no, I'm going to be a livestock vet, or no, I'm going to be a small animal vet, or do you think it has to be the way it is? I think. Um, well, it's interesting because I went in. I, I was one of the few people probably I wanted to be a farm vet from day one and I knew that mm-hmm. and and I left being a farm vet and that's all I've really ever done so I am not the person who you know you'd want to treat your horse or, or see your you know your dog or your cat or anything like that because I've never done it um but I think the skills you learn 
I suppose you could argue, you know, some of the anatomy of learning about, you know, anatomy of species that you never work with, you could say, well, what was the point? But at the same time, the, the general approach that you have for being omnicompetent is, is really important. And I think you still use it. Um, I always remember it was our small animal, it was probably our small animal hospital teaching um, where you were in sort of early fourth year, stuff like that. You started to do your clinical stuff and they just taught you so unbelievably well how to like collect a good history about an animal, you know, talk to an owner and actually, you know, find out all the background first of all, and then do a really thorough clinical exam before you even started to sort of think about what might be going right or what might be going wrong. And that sort of whole process of examining different types of animals, I think is really important. And, you know, you still use some of those skills, you know, when you're examining, a, you know, a cow or a sheep or whatever it happens to be. So I think there's a lot of skills that, that you get from the, the omnicompetence, kind of say it now, that, um, that are really useful that are really useful I, I mean i think the challenge now is is because is like the course just is getting you know potentially getting bigger and bigger all the time because you know knowledge is increasing all the time so it's what you choose to leave in and what you choose to leave out and i think there is increasingly a recognition now that you need day one skills and you're still learning quite a lot on the job once you started you know um uh, there, there is still quite a lot to learn and quite a lot to to hone your skills and it's at that point where you probably do go down a route a bit more um that said in you know take scotland or a lot of rural areas right across the uk you know um i mean i i i would be quite unemployable in a lot of practices in scotland if you think about it because i'm i don't have companion animal experience or horse experience and and you still you know, mixed practice, omnicompetent vets are still very much needed in a lot of areas. Now, that's not to say I probably couldn't go back and learn it, you know, or, or refresh it, but I'd be pretty rusty and it would be pretty scary, you know, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, though, so there still is very much a demand in in large parts of the country for, for mixed vets still. So uh, you, you might spend a lot of your time doing you know one species but there is still a requirement to do other things it's a real challenge that profession's got i think is is how you how you can be really specialist on the one and and retain that sort of broad base that that is still required you know it's funny um kaz that's listening i filmed a podcast with him cameron wilson who you may or may not know as a youtuber yeah yeah, yeah kaz and him are good mates and, and i used yeah, to film yeah. co-host with cami and uh, one thing kaz said it's became a bit of a running joke was if you're uh, if you're a small animal vet out worth Northumberland, it doesn't matter. <laughs> was the was the sort of joke that he'd said. Um, yeah, I don't think he realised I was going to take it as far. I've said it a few times now, but there, there's I think in everything there's there's two ways you can go down a route. You can either generalise or you can specialise, and both mm -hmm. are just as important as each other. Absolutely. You've you've said yeah. down the specialisation route, but um, yeah, and, you mentioned a good yeah, point there. Sorry, Colin, you you can. Tell so I was going to say, yeah, there are some some you know fantastic mixed practice vets, and they genuinely are, you know, you know, general practitioner is still very much required. Um, so yeah, there's there's some really good ones out there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned there it's something I'd never really considered. Maybe I had, but not really noticed. Um, you've almost got to be a counsellor as well because you're dealing with emotions of an owner. You're dealing with um, so much more than just 
I have to fix this animal, you know, um, yeah. m- maybe more so on the companion side, but there's still a connection to farm stock as well, you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's definitely an emotional <laughs> side to it. And I, I actually think on the farm side, increasingly with, with what so much of it is people really mm-hmm. now. And, and it's not that the animals are not important, but with a lot of farm stuff that you do, it's, it's trying to persuade people to perhaps do something differently or to persuade a team of people to perhaps do something differently or think about something in a different way. So a lot of it is people um, rather than animals. And yeah, that's not to say the animals are not important. Clearly they are, but, uh, but the people side of it is massive and, and yeah. And, and the emotional side of it, it's different on farm, isn't it? Um, and, and yeah, all right. The farming is a business, but there's still very much an emotional tie to the animals that they have. And, yeah, there's a lot of stress involved with it, isn't there? You know, the the the, the economics of it can also be stressful. So uh, there's all sorts of angles to it, but there's definitely that welfare, emotional side to to whatever bit of vet medicine you're doing. I think. Oh, oh gotta be, gotta be, um, gotta be. Yeah. With one uh, kind of a similar question to what I'd already asked, but on on that vet school side of things, you know, you've you've got that thing you're covering everything. Do you get a chance to focus on bits, or is, is that just not happen? Is there projects or something like that where you get? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is, and I, you know, um, and and there is more now than there was then. Um, right. So there was particular projects that you could take on. Um, that you know you could you could do a companion animal one or an equine one or or a farm one. Um, through doing the the extramural studies, the sort of seeing practice that you've got to do. I mean, you've got to do the, roughly the equivalent of another year in your holidays um, of, of what they call extramural studies or EMS. So there was some opportunity to to specialise in that, or you know, you, you still had to do so much small animals, so much equine, so much public health, so much farm. So you still had to do a bit of everything, but you could. There was a bit of wriggle room in that to to do more of the things that you were interested in, um, and and go abroad and do various things. So, um, so you know that was great opportunities that you could take. Um, and uh, but now, yeah, there is there is sort of streams. So you can do you can do a farm animal stream for those that are really interested in farm animals uh, at most of the vet schools now. So that you know you, you take it to a slightly more specialist level for an undergraduate and for a new graduate so that you know those will be the people who are interested and who will probably end up going into farm animal practice hopefully at the end of it that's the that would be the hope you mentioned one of the things you know the livestock side's almost more about people now you obviously said the livestock is important of course they are but you can't do anything with those livestock without their say so i assume mm-hmm. in most cases there's sometimes you probably can but um you said there's things you'd like to persuade differently now, the things that spring to mind is overuse of antibiotics, that sort of thing. Now, maybe I'm wrong there, but what, what are the sort of things you're talking about there? Well, it could be all sorts of things, couldn't it? But, but like, there is always going to be a, a human component to things that go right or wrong with animals. And so, you know, you've got a herd of cows, you know, there will be different management practices, won't there, that um, will influence whether animals get healthy or get sick. And obviously, within those management practices there'll be you know farm constraints there'll be business constraints there'll be economic constraints there will be all of the the farm factors that that are totally varied depending on where you are um so you know if you're it could be anything you know if you're dealing with young stock issues or something like that it's like well you know could you 
could you manage the calves in a different way? Could you manage the calving cows in a different way? Just because you've always done it like this doesn't mean you, you necessarily need to continue to do it like this. So it's almost, you know, you've got to challenge people to sort of think, right, well, is there a different way? Farmers are pretty good. I mean, you know yourself, farmers are pretty adaptive. They'll find a way of doing things differently if they can see a reason for it and a benefit to it. So I think they're pretty, they are pretty good and responsive, but they, they want to see a reason why. Um, you know, the antibiotic side, I guess, is, well, it's part of it as well, is is there has to be changes in what you use. There has to be changes in how you use things. Um, and I, I guess with that one, a certain amount of it is, you know, there's carrot and the stick. A certain amount of that is stick, I guess, in that there is... Mm -hmm. There is changes and expectation that are already now in place and that's made a big difference to how how antibiotics are used in farm animal practice so it has changed the game game a little bit um uh, so yeah but but a lot of it the, the real fun bit for me is is actually trying to persuade somebody to to change something and then you know sometimes you, you have that debate don't you the pros and cons of doing it you you almost draw a list of, of what the pros are and what the cons are and when it really works it's quite quite cool you know it is it's quite satisfying that you think well that has made a difference and that's good so you know well it's good for good for both parties isn't it <laughs> all three parties actually yourself yeah. the, the yeah. person in charge and the stock no definitely. yeah definitely yeah. Can, you, can you tell us a bit more about the, the ems um calling the extramural studies yeah so well i mean <laughs> it's the equivalent as i said it's the equivalent of another sort of academic year in your uh in your holidays um uh, so it's not, you know, for, from third year onwards, and that's still the case now, you're doing uh, seeing practice, you've got to do it with vets. Um, and it kind of, it, it builds up over time. So uh, obviously, when you start doing it in third year, you, you have some basic skills. And as you get taught more, as you go through your course, your skills increase. So the hope is, is that, you know, by the end of, of doing your EMS, you are you know you've got a lot more experience particularly in the areas that you're really interested in so that's when you learn to um you know to pd cows and to lift cows feet it's where you learn to you know dehorn carbs and you know do all the clinical examinations it's all supervised though uh so it's where you learn to manage cases it's where you learn to talk to farmers it's where you learn to talk to clients it's where you you know you learn a lot of those skills of you know, the practical skills that you can't teach, you know, you, you're collecting blood samples, doing IV injections, all that kind of stuff. You know, you, you, the practical skills that you just have to do and, you know, over time you you get better at them. So that's that's how it is. And yeah, for me, if I can think back, you know, I, I was I did most of mine at a, a brilliant practice in Macclesfield in Cheshire, which was genuine mixed practice. Um, so, I could do small animals there. I could do equine there. I could do farm animal there. And um, I probably did sneak out on more farm calls if I could, if I'm honest, um, just because that's what I was interested in. Um, and, you know, but it gave you the other, the other good bit about sticking with that particular practice, I suppose, or doing a lot of it with that practice is you got to know them. They got to know you. So they, there's a bit of a trust thing you've got to get going, isn't there? Because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they have to sort of know that, what you're capable of, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, all that kind of stuff, what you're working on, that kind of thing. But, but I did, right? I, I went and worked, um, I went TB testing in Tanzania for eight weeks. Um, and uh, that counted, I think a few weeks, a few of those weeks counted as EMS. Um, 
uh, over there, you know. So I, you, there is some flexibility in terms of what you could do and, and how it could work. So um, it gave you an opportunity to travel. You know, my my wife, she went and worked in uh, in America in a in a in a veterinary hospital part of the summer, that sort of thing. So it, it's not all it's not all bad. You know, you can travel, you can do stuff abroad. You know, you can make you can make you can take your opportunities. You know, that's that's what we did. Did your wife and you meet at university? Or we did, we yeah. did same year at college. So that's uh, both vets. So yeah, that's 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 been good. That's lovely. So good. yeah. And Tanzania. Yes. How how did the the world of farming in Tanzania compared to here? Well, goodness, completely differently. So I I just piggybacked when when I was at um, when I was at vet school. Edinburgh then I think still now as well there, there was a big center of tropical veterinary medicine uh, there and and there was this project looking for for people to help um and they were looking at TB in cattle and how mm-hmm. that could affect humans um and you know the just the whole interrelationship of TB um in sub-saharan africa and you know around about that time hiv was also a big issue so there was a lot of immunosuppressed people as well so big big issue in the human population but they were looking for people to help so we went and tb tested maasai cattle um and then we followed some of those cattle through to um to slaughter to see if they had you know tb lesions inside them that sort of thing so, oh, it was unbelievable. So the Maasai, you know, they'd be there with all of their sort of almost tartan-type uniforms, uh, their sort of cloaks around them. They would they would just collect these cattle together in in bomas. So they, just a sort of a big circular pen with kind of thorns around about it that held them in place. Um, and then they would just lasso them and hobble them to the ground for you to handle them. No crushes, no handling facilities, no nothing. And these guys were so strong and... Uh, the cattle are smaller, you know, they're zebu cattle, so they're smaller, but even still, they're unbelievable cattlemen in that, how they can handle them to to allow you to then TB test them. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience, really learned a lot about about life in general and uh, did a lot of TB testing, which was, uh, learned a lot about TB, which was interesting, saw a lot of TB, um, masses of it over there. Right. About 25% of the cattle had TB. Um, uh, unbelievable really uh, so yeah you, you saw a lot um, and yeah but cattle are a massive status symbol over there in the you know the the more cattle you have the the, the, the greater you're standing in society the more wives you can have all this kind of stuff yes. you know so it's a very different society but cows are a real a real standing in terms of you know who you are and what you've got and all the rest of it it's quite amazing so was was the the cull policy for uh so the 25 percent just continued uh yeah they didn't cull anything and they eat them you know i mean it was unbelievable in that you would go to to where these animals were being slaughtered and obviously meats are massive it, it's a it's a delicacy you know, uh, sure. you know if you're gonna if you're gonna slaughter a cow and eat it then it's a special occasion or you you waste nothing you know absolutely nothing so you know it's expensive it's really you know revered almost and you you certainly wouldn't waste any of it so no i mean in in uk terms back then you know we would we would find these animals with tb and we would say well you know if that was in the uk then it would be you know it wouldn't be fit for human consumption given how bad it was but but over there that didn't feature 
which was a problem. You know, I've got uh, two questions on that, and, and pardon my ignorance on the first one, but why the stringent testing for TV then? In the UK, well, no, because no, there and in, in over there. Well, it was part of that. It was part of a project. It, it wasn't statutory in what they were doing. Um, so it was part of a project that they were doing, and they were there was there was medics, there was vets, there was epidemiologists, there was all sorts of people. So they were looking at the level of TB that was there, and they were trying to work out how it spread between how much how much TB was actually coming from cattle to the human population, what they could do about it. That was really the main thrust of it. So no, it wasn't it wasn't standard normal practice to be TB testing cattle out there, and nothing like it. And there is there is that human there was that human risk in that. I can't remember the final reckoning, but there was certainly a not insignificant chunk of the TB was was coming from cattle to humans. It was genuinely right. that's where it was coming from. And as I say, that was 1994. I did that. So again, HIV/AIDS in that part of Africa was a big issue in those days. Mm. So um, you know, if, if you were immunosuppressed and then you got TB, you were in a bad way. You really were. Yeah. So uh, yeah, quite quite interesting times, and uh, of course they live with their cattle very much out there. You know, they're the same airspace. They'll be they'll be, you know, living with their cattle. They'll they'll drink raw milk. Um, you know, lots of ways it could spread between between the cattle and the humans. If you see what I'm saying. And when you said they eat everything, are we talking CNS as well, or is that discarded? Hmm. I think they did. I'm pretty certain they did. There was nothing wasted. It's just wow. <laughs> it may have changed now over there, but there was nothing wasted. I mean, it was just too valuable to waste, which is a kind of it's an interesting lesson in life, isn't it? It was just too valuable to waste. I, I think they pretty much ate everything in some way, shape, or form. It's it, it's interesting because when I did when I when I was in Glasgow studying, um, seventeen of the twenty three of us were from China, and uh, oh. we would quite often go to traditional Chinese restaurants, like you know not. Not Cantonese still chicken, like yeah, <laughs> actual China food that was eaten in yeah, China, yeah. you know, like duck's feet and stuff like that. And yeah, first off, yeah. lovely, absolutely loved that. Um, but it was so refreshing to see how little they wanted to waste. And we look at what we eat here, even past the safety side of things, we're so yeah. wasteful. Like it's oh, it, that's hideously. I mean, yeah, I mean, we are. We've got much more stringent food safety rules for good reasons, but we Absolutely. still waste so yeah. much food. And yeah, if, if we could sort food waste out, my God, we'd be in a much better place, wouldn't we? Well, it's, it's 33% the world over. So. Mm. Uh, sorry, in UK. Uh, in UK. It's utterly frightening that. Mind you, the way the world is going and, and the price that food is, I think we are going to start to value it a bit more. I hope we are. That's got to be one of the one of the hopeful good things that might come out of this mess we're in at the moment. We'll hope so. Yeah, it's going to be a, we're obviously filming, well, not obviously, for those of you listening, we're filming this September, August, end or last day in August, second last day in August. Um, And uh, this will be coming out mid-November. We might be already in the middle of a crisis. You know, what this winter's looking good. I can't think, I can't imagine things are going to be cheaper by then, anyway. No, no. Um, I'm going to ask a real weird question here because this is just something just lit in my brain there. Zebu, is that, are they bovine? Is it Indicus instead of Taurus? Is that right? In, yeah, in, Indicus. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they're, they're, they are still bovine, but they've got, they're small, much smaller. They've got a big sort of fatty, like, lump just at the sort of base of their neck that sticks up. Um, and yeah, just, just similar but different, I guess. 
Does that lump have any use? It's not like an acamelid of any sort. Of no, no, it's not a water store. It's fatty. Um, so it's just a fat reserve, I think, more as much as anything else. It's not like a camel uh, in terms of water, no, I don't think so. When you when you mentioned Tanzania, you reminded me of someone at Glasgow Vet School. Have you ever came across Nick Johnson? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great guy. Fantastic yeah. entertainment, Nick is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he taught me he taught me in my fifth year of my master's. At, uh, yeah, uh-huh. great guy. Absolutely great, great guy. Yeah. Tix was his thing. Tix was his thing, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Tix is a much bigger. Well, Tix is a big thing over here now as well. But but Tix over there has always been a big thing. Just these these sort of ectoparasite diseases, a much bigger thing in in Africa. Um, although to be honest, in Dumfries and Galloway, they're getting equally important and bad. I would say so. Yeah, changing times, changing times. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a bit ago, you mentioned public health. Uh, Colin, could you could you tell us mm. just a bit about that? Public health. Well. Uh, I mean, a vet's a big part of a vet and a food animal vet's role is maintaining public health. Um, period. You know, so any animal products that you eat, whether that is a you know steak um, or whether that is you know gelatin that goes into different types of product, whatever it happens to be, you know, there will be veterinary involvement in ensuring that. The animal from which that came, you know, was 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 fit for human use, human consumption in whatever way, uh, um, and that's right, you know, right the way through the food chain. So that's you know, in terms of not only health but also you know the welfare of the animal as it goes through you know slaughter process and all that kind of stuff, right the way through to you know there is no transmissible diseases or anything like that that's going through it. So you know there are vets. That work in abattoirs, um, you know, overseeing that whole process. Uh, there are public health standards that are there. Um, you know, similarly in some of the work that, that we're involved with as well. Um, you know, certain diseases are reportable because they are a potential risk to human health. Therefore, when you diagnose them, then obviously there's an animal implication, but there's also a you know a human implication. So vets are involved there. Similarly. You know, food standards agency. So if you think of some of the possible poisonings that animals can get, um, so I'm thinking now about things like I don't know lead poisoning or something like that, which happens occasionally. Um, so obviously there's an implication for the animal in terms of trying to prevent that and treat that, but also there's an implication for the food chain in terms of making sure that you protect the food chain. So it works. It works all sorts of ways, um, but a big role of a vet, obviously, you know the number one sort of headline roles are about, you know, animal health and welfare and, you know, your sort of your ultimate oath to the the welfare of an animal. But in the food side, there was a big component of protecting the food chain, protecting people. It's maybe less, perhaps less understood than, than some of the roles of a vet, I guess, but it's, it's, it's nonetheless important. And, um, let's. I, we've sort of jumped back and forth. It's quite quite good to hear that story that way. Um, you've you've just left uni, uh, Colin. What what was next? So I um, went back to Cheshire. Not not because I really planned it as such. I didn't really have a plan. Um, I knew I wanted to do farm animal work, and didn't really want to go into mixed practice. I I, I was I was totally I want to go into farm animal practice, and. 
there wasn't, wasn't that many farm animal only practices in 1995. There's a lot more of them now. You know, it's very much simpler to go into farm animal only practice now compared to what it was then. And yeah, job came up at a, a very large veterinary practice in Cheshire, um, uh, Willow's Vet Group in Cheshire, and they had a farm animal department. And I just jumped right in. I, I went for the job and um, was lucky enough to get it as a new grad. And so there was 12 farm vets as a team that we just did nothing but farm work. We were the farm team. And for me as a, you know, as a new grad, that's just the perfect place to get, to get started because you very quickly gain the experience that you need, you know? So when it comes to, you know, doing carvings or various bits of surgery or, you know, a lot of the common tasks, you, you, you do so many of them that you come, you know, you get used to them quite quickly. So it's a great way to start. So I, I was really lucky, really lucky, well supported in a, in a new practice and yeah, loved it, really loved it. And how long were you there for? I was there for five years. Um, and I suppose Carol and I got married during that time as well. So, you know, we're at that stage of life where we're looking for, we're always having to think about both of our jobs rather than just mine. So uh, Carol got a job around there as well. And that all worked, worked pretty well. Yeah, it was really good. It was really, really good. Um, Cheshire was, was good fun. It was that stage of life where um, sort of, you know, just left uni, got money for the first time, didn't have too many responsibilities in life in terms of, uh, you know, family or mortgages or anything, you know, like that. So, yeah, we could enjoy life. So we worked, we worked blooming hard, but, uh, but we, you know, it was that stage of your life in your sort of mid-twenties, which was good fun, really good fun. It is good fun. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, so we had, we had a great time, great time. And it was a nice part of the world to live in as well because we actually – we were quite close to the motorway, I guess we were like right on the motorway, but you know, you, you were quite easy to get to. So we, it was easy for us to go places and it was also good for people sort of dropping in and seeing you as well, you know? So it was quite, quite central in the UK. It was good. It was quite handy. Was a move to, well, it wouldn't be SRUC then, ACC next, or was there something in between? No, that was next in that we, I guess like we loved it, but I guess Carol and I, we, we got to that point where we kind of thought, can't, you know, we were two young vets, two on call rotors. We always used to joke. We, we lived on a farm. We rented a, a house on a farm and, you know, I'd be driving out the driver, she was driving in or vice versa, <laughs> you know, and, and you kind of thought, well, this, you know, for five years, it was brilliant. You know, you, you just lived the life and, but you did get to that point where you kind of thought we probably can't carry on living a life just quite like this if you're trying to get a little bit more stability in it you know um because yeah it was pretty pretty bonkers in terms of how we worked then um so yeah we kind of had this notion that we would move back to scotland and uh cows from glasgow um and, and i had family connections in scotland and we thought we'd like to move back to scotland but we didn't really have a specific plan i knew that i wanted to try and stick doing farm work um and yeah and we thought about that stage of life we thought we probably wanted to buy a house and you know do all those sorts of things as well and we, we up until that point we we just rented and all that kind of stuff so yeah so we thought we'd give it a go and and we kind of thought well we'll try and achieve this all in in a year or two it's kind of our two or three year plan is how we would work our way back up north and we'd actually done it all i think in six months in that we'd a job came up at sac and i thought well 
sounds interesting give it a go nothing to lose um and you know what's the worst that happens you do it for a year or two and if it doesn't work out you go back and you know you've learned some new skills and you've done some new things and you know you can always go back to more traditional veterinary practice i suppose um so yeah so we so we just went for it and we bought a house and and moved north and yeah we did move around a little bit to start off with went to perthshire to start off with and then down to ayrshire where we settled and where we still are um and yeah where there's two of us as well that involved a bit of you know a bit of moving about um you know trying to work out jobs carol locum for a few years um before you know getting the job that she's in now and yeah there was a bit of moving around which is always quite hard sometimes just when there's two of you but but it, it did work out i suppose we had foot in the mouth in the middle of that as well which kind of uh, upset things for a while as well so um yeah interesting times i hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the r2 cast with another really interesting guest i would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today the scottish farmer and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Were you at the research centre during Foot and Mouth or were you, maybe that's the wrong name, where you are at the minute or were you... Uh... Yeah, I was based uh, when I, I, my sort of first main job uh, with SIUC or SAC as it was then was at Ockencrove. Right. Um, so it was a VI, so a veterinary investigation centre at Ockencrove. Um, so I was working there, um, and yeah, that's that's where it was. That's where we were working during well during foot and mouth, and obviously that was I suppose that was my first first really pretty grim introduction to Dumfries and Galloway. Actually, was uh, during foot and mouth, which is where we worked for for a number of months because there was that was all it was really at the time. So, yeah, well, it was one of the the hardest places in the country, and that there was animals that were getting called for that had nothing wrong because they were in that radius you know um that must be a challenging time challenging yeah weird um every every possible emotion i think you can imagine from uh you know utter despair to you know like quite incredible human nature and teamwork and you know amazed you know you go through a you go through a very difficult time with someone it's amazing what human qualities that can bring out of people as well you know whether that is on the behalf of the poor farmers that were having to deal with this or all the team of people round about that were having to, to deal with it but yeah no it was it was utterly bizarre and pretty pretty grim looking back at it but it was just one of those things that you you know you just you had to do the decisions were made whether they were right or wrong you know in terms of you know the sort of the, the the sheep culling and that sort of stuff that went on who knows uh it was certainly effective in that disease was brought under control pretty quickly in Dumfries and Galloway relative to other parts of the country but uh it was pretty brutal one thing that um Kate Rowell said to if you're listening guys you want to listen to another vet story after this one uh, I think it was number 39 uh yeah number 39 um Kate said that Foot and mouth wasn't really a thing you talked about at uni. It wasn't massive in, in that day. So it was that must have been hard as well. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird in that it wasn't really... Well, we were taught about it at uni, um, uh, but you were taught about it as in what it was and the last time it was in the UK, which was, I think, in the 60s. 
And yeah, you never really thought very much of it. And it's one of these things you kind of thought, yeah, well, that's foot and mouth. Yeah. Probably see that. Um, and yeah, there we were, what, six years qualified and right in the right in the thick of it. Um, which was not what you expect, but that's that's just the that's just no, the way it goes. A, I mean, really, it was actually a guy. It's actually a guy in our year that found it in the first one as well. It was, was it uh, pig? Yeah, down in yeah. down in pigs in Essex or something like that. It was him. I mean, you know, he had the he had the foresight to look at those in an abattoir and go, something not right here, something very not right here, and that's how it all started. That was that was yeah. I was just going to say trying to really delve into the memory of that podcast, but she said that I think it was crazy. yeah, it's quite a, it was quite a call, quite a call to make is go right this 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 is foot and mouth or you know to to suspect it yeah major call anyway. yeah major call but yeah very fair play to absolutely yeah well it, if it hadn't been him who found it someone else would have found it eventually but how much longer would it have taken and how much more damage had been done in the meantime you know that's yeah. The thing. That's it. That's it. So, what, what's a day in your life like, Colin? From having heard about it, it sounds intense. Uh, uh, yeah. But tell us, or maybe even a day is not fair because every day will probably be different. What, what's your job? It, it is quite days? different. Um, Carol says I'm really terrible at explaining what I do, and um, you think <laughs> having done it for so long um, that I I should have worked it all out by now. So I suppose my my job is not like a a traditional vet practice job now so I work for for SRUC um, and and my job title I guess is a veterinary investigation officer which sounds terribly terribly grand um, uh, so there is a lot of variety in terms of what what I do and what we do uh, so um, for me personally there's, there's different strands to it I guess uh, the the veterinary investigation job is um we've got a, a place based in Dumfries so we we help vets and farmers in our area uh to investigate disease um so that could be on farm it could be pathology related so doing postmortems it could be lab related in terms of the lab tests um and the whole point is is you know to look at disease problems whether they be individual animals or whether they be herds flocks whatever um, and try and get to the bottom of what it is, try and get answers. Uh, um, and we kind of use those answers in two ways, I suppose. One is to sort of refer them back to the, the vet and the farmer so that they can do something about it. So, you know, if you know that your, your cow has died of whatever disease, you know, uh, then, you know, they can either change their management or they can change their vaccination protocols, their treatment protocols, whatever it happens to be as a result of the information that we get so that's a big part of it is you know feeding that back to to a vet and to a farmer so they can do something about it and and that's probably the bit that the farmer sees the most of and the vet sees the most of so we work with with all the vet practices in our area and have good sort of close working relationships with them so we we work a lot alongside what they do in their day jobs um and then also a big part of the process is kind of using the data that's generated from this. So we we essentially, from a sort of what you call disease surveillance point of view, so uh, we're looking for changes in disease patterns. That's probably the best description I can give. So that could be um, a brand new disease that's never been seen before, um, which is a change. 
or it could be a disease that we understand that has changed how it behaves. And that's another change. Or it could be a disease that we understand where, you know, 10 years ago we were hardly seeing any of it and now we're seeing loads of it. And, and that's really important to know because it can then influence what either individual farmers do or it could actually influence what, what the industry does. You know, so that can feed back to government, it could feed back to research, it could feed back to all sorts of things. So suddenly if, you know, if well, I mentioned tick-borne disease like 10 minutes ago, you know, so that's an interesting one because I think, you know, that's a disease syndrome, a collection of diseases, if you like, that's increasing. Um, and I think that's important that we know that um, because as an industry, we need to be thinking, well, what more can we do about it? Do we need more research? Do we need to change how we manage the animals to try and limit the risks? So there's all sorts of levels to it, I suppose, is, is how you how you manage it at, a, you know, and it's very simplest. It's how a farmer will manage it for either an individual animal or a, a group of animals. But at a much wider level, it's, well, how do you manage it at a an area level or a country level? And, you know, what more does, does the industry need to do, whether that's, you know, the levy bodies, whether that's research, whether that's government, whether that's the NFU, all the different people that are trying to to hopefully help the industry improve or, or, or you know stay competitive, do better, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. You know. So, would you say you do half and half post mortem and anti mortem, or more post or more? So I do. That's part of my job. Um, I mean, and I would we kind of do duty vet days in at Dumfries. Uh, and in all of the, the vet labs that we operate. So on those sorts of days, you'll you'll take whatever you get. You don't really know what you're going to get on those sorts of days. Um, in the spring, we're probably slightly busier than we are. At, you know, probably August is actually our quietest month because, we you know, animals are a fairly, you know, even state. Mm-hmm. A lot of them outside, uh, you know, quite a quite a more straightforward time of year compared to let's say the spring or or, or the winter time um so duty vet days you, you just take whatever you get which you know some days will be you know you just don't know what you're going to get in terms of let's say caseload through the post-mortem room and things like that and i guess it is the you know hopefully it's the ultimate way of making a diagnosis on something you see what i'm saying you've got every opportunity to get to the bottom of what's going on and and we have a, a what what's really nice is we have a good amount of uh i suppose professional freedom if you call it that to really investigate things so so the worst thing for us is is that you don't get an answer mm-hmm. and you can put quite a lot into trying to get an answer you know especially if it's needed um you know you can you can really go a long way to doing it so so that's some of the time I, i'm also been really lucky in my career uh and I think it's 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 what's what's kept me going as well. A whole variety of things is uh, um, I've managed to sort of get involved with some of the research work that we do um, at the Dairy Research Centre. Um, uh, been able to get involved with some of the projects. I was really lucky when I first started at Ochenkruve in that I guess one of my bosses and one of my mentors was a, a guy called David Logie. He's retired now, a real character, an Irishman, and uh, yeah, he was just really, he was much more into the research side back then. And, and he kind of got me involved with that. And I've always managed to, to stick with that and, and stay involved with that, which has been a lot of fun. And actually, SRE has been good to me in that, you know, they, they've allowed allowed you to follow your interests a bit and, you know, take 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 that 
further if you get the opportunity. So it's been quite good from that point of view. I've just um, just instantly realised uh, I mentioned earlier two previous vets, Hazel Mullins. I forgot to mention you, but uh, Colin, you mentioned research there. Um, now I understand you can't tell us what research is going on, but what yeah. what sort of research are you doing? You know, you don't have to go into specifics, obviously, but um... so there's certain areas that I've been involved with over the years, and and it's kind of evolved, obviously. Some of the research that's going on at uh, the Dairy Research Centre, a lot of that is in relation to genetics and um, environment in terms of the interactions between feeding and genetics and, and trying to produce essentially cows that are more productive, more long living, more appropriate to what we need, you know, trying to produce the, the, the cows of the future, I suppose. And and I've, I've been loosely involved with that. Um, and, and part of that project team, because obviously it's a big wide team, but I'm, I'm no geneticist and I'm not a nutritionist or anything like that. But the main areas that I've been interested in have been lameness, dairy cow lameness, which is okay. a, a big one. Um, and we've managed to to have some fun with that over the years in terms of being part of, of some wider teams as well that have, have, have helped our understanding of that. Um, probably more recently as well. And, and again, it's, it's, it's young stock, disease dairy calves um which has been really it kind of completes the circle in a way in that you know a lot of, of the material that we get through the diagnostic lab will be young stock related um you know a lot of a lot of dairy calves um you know a lot of calf pneumonia a lot of calf health issues that we see and therefore it's been quite good fun to get involved with you know looking at preventive strategies, treatments, that sort of thing. So probably now more the area that, that I would be involved in very practically is is on on looking after dairy young stock and, and how better to do that. Um, so yeah, those are probably the two main areas that, that I'm involved with just now, um, which again, for me, is practical stuff. It's not really, you know, really, really highbrow, fancy test tube shaking research do you know what i mean it's more more the stuff that you could apply on a farm if you needed to yeah so, uh, just so. because it's not the highfalutin test tubey stuff does not mean it's not important and <laughs> it's been applied to no no, no no and 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 i guess that's the other thing as well is is that a lot a lot of of our time and and i guess your time as well is is trying to trying to get this information out there to the industry you know whether that's students or whether that's farmers or whoever it is is so that you can actually use this information rather than you know sitting in a in a textbook or a journal or something like that it's actually to get it get it out there the the handy thing about students over farmers is you've got a bit of a captive audience they're not allowed to leave for half an hour so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true that is true farmer meetings yeah you've got to that's nice I, I did some farmer meetings last week actually and it was great fun because uh, there's still a real nice appetite at the moment people have just not done it for so long it's really good to to get a bit of chat going again it's great fun you know it's so nice to do these things again i mean i know we're doing this over zoom but i feel like this is a bit of a positive use of zoom i thought zoom and teams yeah, yeah. just got a bit overburdening for a while it just became oh, yeah relentless <laughs> you, you only realize what you've missed when you start just getting in a yeah with a group of people and having a good chat and yes just that that farmers are great people to talk with aren't they because they 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 tell you what they think and they they do chat well they do interact really well so you'd always get good chat going with them it's good 
You mentioned earlier that uh, you can be working on diseases you've been used to for some time and they're evolving and, and so on and so forth. You also mentioned that sometimes brand new diseases come along. How often does that happen? Well, not that often, but it does happen. Um, and it's one of our jobs is to find them, really. That is one of the key things. This is when you get a new and emerging disease is, you know, what is it and what can you do about it? And, um, yeah, they do. They do come along. Um, and, and even within, within my working lifetime, there have been, you know, there have been multiple new diseases uh, come along over the over the time, you know, uh, which we've never seen before. And and sometimes it takes you a while to work out that they're there as well, uh, just because they don't always just present in a. It's real detective work, I suppose, in that they don't always present in in a classical kind of way. Um, so you kind of have to work your way through them, I suppose. So I don't know. I'm just trying to think of recent example. Probably one of the the best, most recent examples which is a is a super cool story if you think about it is um i don't know whether you remember or heard of uh, schmallenberg disease in i was Catholic. wondering if you were going to say yeah <laughs> yeah which is i mean that's now it's not actually new new and that's probably what eight nine years ago now yeah i thought i was i don't think i'd started uni so yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. about that and that was an absolutely cool story when you think about it because that started off as in people in holland and Germany recognizing that they were getting more cattle just with milk drop. You know, they were, they were, had a temperature, the milk was down and they were, they had diarrhea, you know, so scoured and, you know, really very non-specific kind of stuff. And then they, they happened to be sharp enough that they noticed that they were getting a few more of these cases and it didn't seem to feature as a, a classical diagnosis. They didn't get any answers to it, you know, so all the common things were ruled out and then they started looking for, for other stuff. And then they eventually found the particular virus that, 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 that was there and was common to all of them. Um, and they, you know, well, the minute you know what it is, you can then look at a sort of a, like a family tree of viruses and work out what it's similar to. Uh, so they very quickly worked out what it was similar to around the world, and they they predicted that it might have effects on um, the unborn calf or the unborn lamb. And then, lo and behold, it was around about Christmas time, so you were just at that stage where you had early lambing sheep flocks, and lo and behold, they appeared. You know, and that appeared in uh, Holland and Germany, and you know, they very quickly moved to knowing exactly what the virus was, getting diagnostic tests, getting vaccines. And then it would be, you know, 12 months later, it was, it turned up in Dumfries and Galloway. You know, so it's amazing how just within a very short period of time, you can go from not knowing what something is to it actually arriving quite a long way away when you think about it. From, oh, yeah, from for sure. And, and when you're talking about that, you know, Holland and Germany sort of dating back to see what sort of relationship to, to other viruses there, the sort of family tree type thing. is. So when Schmallenberg was, was around and we're hearing it in the papers and hearing it in the news and stuff like that, it, that was still when it was over there. But had it not been anywhere recorded before? Is that how? Or yeah. had it been elsewhere? Yes, yeah, so it's just brand new in that it's sense. Brand new, brand new, brand new. 
Um, uh, so there were similar viruses, but this was this was completely different. So it had obviously mutated, and was was completely new. So uh, they'll happen again for sure. Yeah. They, they've got to happen again, and you know things will never stay the same. Things will change. No idea what the next one would be, um, yeah. and. You know, the time before, probably the other, another sort of big new disease that came along in the last 10, 15 years was uh, a thing called bleeding calf syndrome, which was was calves that were born that, that, that um, essentially their bone marrow wasn't working. So they couldn't, uh, you know, eventually their blood wouldn't clot and, uh, you know, they would die of hemorrhages. And um, it's all pretty graphic stuff, this, isn't it? But, uh, but yeah, completely That's different. Cool. Completely different type of disease, though it wasn't. You know, it, it was an immune response, uh, and it was immune-related disease rather than a, a virus or a bacteria or these sorts of things. So that's the other thing as well is, is is that you know you kind of think about, you know, well we've just lived through COVID, haven't we? So we think about viruses and bacteria, but it might be something else. It could be genetic, it could be environmental. You just you just don't know. You've got to you've got to be quite open-minded about some of these things, um, and that's part of our job in what we do is is to sort of hopefully try and recognize when something's changed common things are common things are common in life you know what i mean in that you know you'll always see the regular run-of-the-mill stuff and that's what's to be expected um so you know pneumonia mastitis lameness parasite disease you know we know what it is and we would recognize it fairly easily it's it's working out when you've got something different that's Mm -hmm. that's the interesting there's uh, you're you're mainly dairy based now, or is there sheep and, and beef as well, Colin? Yeah, I mean through the through the disease surveillance centre, I would say we are third beef, third sheep, third dairy. You know that, that just mirrors sort of the, the livestock population of, of Dumfries and Galloway, I guess. Um, we're we're kind of lucky that we've got a lot of the you know it's the centre of the Scotland's dairy industry, so we're 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 lucky from my personal job point of view that we've got that um uh but you know uh, a big upland area in dumfries and galloway as well so you know a lot of really good beef and sheep flocks as well as as the dairy so it's a nice mix um and it's mainly that work that we do uh thankfully i'm not a pig person and there's only a small handful of pig farms in the area so it's not a big pig area um uh so it's mainly ruminant stuff we're doing yeah yeah um on the sheep side i mean this isn't a new thing but it's 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 more maybe a buzz term uh, these days your iceberg diseases yeah, uh, yeah is that a thing that's popping up around here definitely um and it's uh, it's a it's it's definitely an issue so these ones will be things like um opa Yonis, um, border disease, spiny business, these sorts of things. And yeah, we definitely see them. Um, they're probably underdiagnosed, if we're honest. Um, and, you know, they, they're coming more to the fore, uh, absolutely more to the fore in, in terms of we've seen more of them over time. Um, and they are a you know, they are a drain on production for these sort of sheep systems. If you, if you have a big problem with one of these diseases, then it, it's going to affect health and performance of your flock, no question about it. So, um, yeah, there's, they're, they're big challenges in a way in terms of how you manage them out of the system and how you try and 
work with them over time i would say so yeah but we see them a lot we do see them a lot. Yeah, you're seeing you're seeing various folk um, accredit. That's obviously mainly uh, mainly MV, but to try and work on them, and you know, you know that, that involves segregating your stock and stuff like. So it's not just something that's 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 for the crack. Not if you will. all. It's it, they are difficult, and and uh, and that's part of the problem, I guess, is is that they're not easy fix things, um, and. You know, we take OPA as an example. They're hard to Yangtze tea. It's hard to diagnose. You know, uh, um, we'll, we'll miss a lot of cases for sure because it's uh, in a live clinical case in the early stages. It will be hard to find in, in, a, in a sheep. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, it's it's always an interesting question this one to ask uh, because everyone I speak to is different parts of the industry, different areas of the sector, so on and so forth. Has, has Brexit or COVID changed your life, your career-wise the last couple of years, or, or has it not really had much of an effect? Um, my career, um, I think if you take the veterinary profession overall, uh, we've got real workforce issues at the moment as a profession. Okay. Um, in that uh, we don't have enough vets, period. Um, right. We've lost a lot of uh, vets coming in from other countries. So that could be a combination of Brexit. It could be a combination of COVID as well in that they, you know, they went home and then they couldn't get back or whatever. Um, so workforce issues are a real challenge. Um, and, and that's one of the big challenges that, that the veterinary profession has is, having enough vets and also retaining enough vets, um, uh, you know, working. Uh, so th there are real challenges. So that that's partly a Brexit and partly a COVID thing. Um, for me, COVID, I was just so lucky in a way in that we, we were able to work as normal. You're working in, in food chain and, you know, you were considered an essential worker, um, uh, which from that perspective meant we could carry on and and work pretty much as as well there was a lot of changes in terms of how you try to manage all of the the sort of social distancing and all that sort of stuff but we could still do our jobs um whereas like from a wife working in companion animal work her, her job was was really disrupted in terms of you know having to see you know animals outside um uh, you know consulting in a car park doing things on mobile phones all that kind of stuff you know i mean we're just really fortunate that well touchwood we're out of that now so i mean clearly covid's impacted big time um uh, and, and workforce man people power issues is going to be a real a real continue to be a challenge for us at the moment yes yeah, it was a uh a weird time. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's almost becoming becoming more weird when you more you, now you look back at it and you kind of think, goodness, that really was odd. Now we've kind of hopefully moved away from it a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. But when you say there's not enough vets, do you mean large animal or do you mean in general? In general, right, um, uh, right across the piece. Um, so. Yeah, I think it affects every element of the profession. Um, and it's a combination of not enough vets available. Um, so either that's, you know, we're not being able to attract 
a, a chunk of the workforce from other countries uh, or we're not producing enough of our own. Uh, and I know there's new vet schools cropping up, you know, in various places across the UK, which are hoping to address some of that. Uh, but there is also an issue with retention and actually farm animal is, is a particular one with, with retention. And that's a very complex issue in terms of the reasons why people may either not stay in the profession or move away from farm animal, move into small animal work. And yeah, there's a lot, it's a very, it's, it, there's no one reason for that. It's, it's multiple. Um, and you know, it's something that as a profession we need to, well, we are as a profession, you know, working really hard to try and, you know, help and support particularly, you know, first five year qualified people to, to try and get a good start in, in their career and, and move on, uh, and, and stay. Uh, um, but it, you know, it, it, everybody's situation is different, isn't it? There's always yeah. going to be challenges depending on, uh, you know, where you end up and under what circumstances you end up. I know it's a thing we hopefully hopefully come out of. It's never nice to see any industry suffer with lack of staff. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean, it's just, well, I mean, agriculture is the same at the moment, isn't it? It's not just, the, I mean, I think most walks of life at the moment is getting staff is a challenge and farming will be no different at all. I think if you look up, look up, for example, milking jobs in Dumfries, there'll be loads. Oh, just heaps endless jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Endless yeah. Jobs. No, no end of them. Yeah. And yeah, challenging, challenging. But yeah, well, it's just how you sort of see a way through it. And then it's going to be, I'm all in favor of new vet schools, but we need to work hard at keeping keeping the vets we've got as well in terms of making sure that they they stay in the profession and they take career breaks that you know there's an easy route back in um that kind of stuff it's really really important that we 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 do better at that i think over time yeah yeah and that that's a that's a responsibility that's on the whole industry it's not just certain people it's everyone's got to keep it in in incentivizing people to stay there to come back that sort of thing um yeah. yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I tell you what, Colin, it's been it's been great to chat. I've actually just realised I was quickly writing a little note there that you've been the third Colin in ten R two casts. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of stats, don't you? It's brilliant. Yeah. What's the, oh, I'm a bit of a yeah. I think I told you this off camera. I do like the sort of number side, but uh, number yeah. fifty seven. We had Colin McKinnon, another Colin from Dumfries, yeah. uh, talking yeah. about young farmers. Number 62, we had my dad, Colin Curry, talking about his life on iron. And uh, we had yourself today. So it's been great. great. I, I love chatting to vets, but I always get this fear that I'm going to sound really silly because... Not at all. Not at all. But I found it really interesting. Kaz, I hope I've done you proud and interviewed Colin well enough for you. Uh, if not, we'll have to get you on to do another one with him. Um, uh, first off, Colin, I hope you've enjoyed coming on. Yeah, I loved it. It's been good. Um, there is two questions that we end every single R2Cast with, however. Uh, the first one being, where do you see yourself in five years? And the second one being, which is maybe quite important given what we just spoke about, if you had any tips for folk coming into veterinary, what would they be? Um, I think if you're coming in, coming into veterinary, um, I think, I think the main one with that is, is to be sure and don't rush it. Um, and I think that probably relates into some of the retention issues as well is, um, 
you know it's a long it's a long training and um you know the job itself afterwards you know there's a there's a lot to it as well so um i'm always like my, my kids now are kind of well one's at university and one's um uh, got two more years to go at school and i'm always kind of saying as well be sure that's what you want to do don't rush it you know you, you, it's a long time at university if you then get to the other end and you think oh, you know don't really like that uh and therefore really if you're thinking about going into vet it's really really be sure it is the job for you find out as much as you can about it and and really get to talk to a lot of different vets in a lot of different circumstances and find out the full extent of what they do because it's a it's a brilliant career um i have i, I can honestly say I, I you know i love my job uh i still enjoy it but you know it, it can have its challenges as well so be really sure that that is what you want to do take your time to think about it and research it and and be sure it is definitely for you um and then go for it you know absolutely go for it because there's a lot of fun to be had a huge amount of fun to be had so that will be that one um where do i see myself in five years time and uh hopefully still working um uh i think i still will be working in five years time uh uh Will I be still working in the job I'm in? Yeah, quite probably. I think um, we'll, we'll we'll see how it goes. I, I would be keen to sort of stay in the area that I'm I'm working in, in both geographically, and I'd be keen to um, you know maybe follow some of the the interests in a bit more detail that that I've got. Um, so yeah, we'll see we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. The other plan, of course, and we'll see how that one goes as well. Is once once the kids are a bit older, is is to stay working as a vet, but go and uh, go and locum, go Carol and I, and go and locum different places. And that's the thought that we're both working on at the moment is whether you go and do do a block of time here and a block of time there, and 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 live that sort of life, which might be quite good fun as well. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. And I'm guessing from what you said, they're calling both both kids are interested in veterinary. No, not at all. No, 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 no. They're doing other No, my 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 eldest daughter's doing geography. Um, and my youngest, well, she's talking about doing medicine, but she's got two more years to do at school yet, so we'll see. But not vet medicine. I don't think either of them. Well, I don't don't think vets for them for sure. Right. No, I just when you said the tips, I just I thought you were aiming at the at the kids. Yeah. Um, but no, I appreciate you coming on. I know you're very much a busy man, um, so. Thank you for that. I've taken an hour and a half out of your evening, but um, that's been great. <laughs> no, I'm glad, glad you've enjoyed it. Uh, as I said, this won't be out for some time, but when it does, I'll make sure to send you. Uh, all I really have left to say, guys, is I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I'm sure you have. Um, the vet, the vet podcasts go down pretty well. It must be said. Um, as I said, for the reason earlier, I'm always a wee bit reluctant because uh, I want to make sure I do them justice. Uh, but I think Colin very much has done himself justice in this one. So it's been a good, good other episode. Looking forward next week uh, and hope you guys are too to uh, interview someone again in the States. It's going to be two people this time, as I said, Tara and uh, Natalie or Natalia, I can't remember, um, talking about that Elevate Ag and just what is happening in the ag industry in the States, which is always quite interesting to see the differences between different countries. And I have, I might as well say now, set myself a bit of a challenge, which is an absolutely insane challenge. 
um, to try and interview someone from at least 75% of the world's countries. Now, that is about <laughs> 150 places. Uh, and I've said 75% because there's definitely some countries out there that I think I might struggle with, i.e. the likes of North Korea. Um, so that's a challenge that I've now put it out there. I didn't think I was ever going to say it. I thought I was going to try and aim for it myself, but we're going to have to do about a thousand R2 casts. You never know might be the next Joe Rogan uh, soon enough. So thank you very much, Colin. Guys, if you're listening, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and we shall see you next week. Good evening. See ya. Well, that's it. Another R2Cast finished. Another agricultural mind opened up. And I would just like to say that getting these guests on board uh, does take time uh, and it always has done, but I've now went weekly and with that comes even more time required. And I would just like to finally thank once more The Scottish Farmer for sponsoring the show and making that much more possible. Please be sure to get in touch if you've any ideas of people you'd like to see on the podcast or maybe ideas you have for me presenting better because I definitely do require that. See you in the next one.